The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Serving. That's what your handout says there. Serving. By spiritual disciplines, by way of reminder, these are the basic fundamental routines of the Christian life that God calls us to for basic spiritual maintenance, basic Christian vitality. These are routines. Hopefully, you don't consider them mundane. They're just Routines, they're second nature. Kind of like the routines that are healthy for us physically speaking. The routines you do every day that you shouldn't neglect. You brush your teeth, hopefully, every day. You don't even think about it. It's just a habit. You drink your eight glasses of water. I know you do to maintain your health every day. You do your push-up. You do your 20 push-ups a day. You take your two-mile walk. And so on and so forth. So that maintenance... Of the body. These are things that are routine. And just because they're routine doesn't mean they're not important. They're actually vital. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about spiritual disciplines. Uh, these should be true of every Christian who wants to honor God, that knows Christ. Christ expects these of us. And they need to be happening regularly every day. They, what they do is they really lay the foundation. It's a solid foundation for the rest of our life. Of the rest of our Christian life. And they matter. Some people have the attitude that, oh, those little things don't really matter. Well, actually they do. They're like the building blocks. They're like the cells of the body. The cells. If you have healthy cells in your body, you have a healthy body. You can't have a healthy body without healthy cells. So that's what I'm speaking about, these Christian disciplines. So today we'll look at serving, and then we will uh, look at a few more that are just so vital to a healthy walk with Christ. If you were to pick a theme verse for this series this summer on the Christian disciplines, I would say we could use 2 Corinthians 13. I'll just read it to you. 2 Corinthians 13.5, we read it earlier, but we'll just keep reminding ourselves of it because it's so challenging. It's a command, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. This was Paul writing to a church that he planted this church in Corinth. He pastored there for at least a year and a half, stayed in touch with them, knew them, wrote letters to them. He was their shepherd. He loved them. They were saved by the gospel, yet they had their challenges and shortcomings. He concludes the letter, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, with another imperative or challenge or reminder as their pastor. And this is true for, this applies to all Christians. It applies to us today. Verse 5, Paul says, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself to see if you truly are a Christian. You mean I have to test myself to see, is there a possibility I might not be a Christian even though I think I am? Yes, that's called self-deception. It's real. It's dangerous. Sometimes it is satanically orchestrated. Judas is the prime example for two plus years. He truly thought he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And his 11 buddies, the colleagues, the other 11 apostles, thought he was as well until he was finally exposed. So test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself in an ongoing manner 
to see if you're really a Christian. Test yourself in an ongoing present tense. Continue as a normal pattern of life, as a Christian discipline, if you will. Here's another Christian discipline. In addition to giving and praying is testing yourself. And it's a very specific kind of testing. Test yourself to see if you're a Christian, to see if you're in the faith. Uh, how do you do that? Well, objectively, there's objective standards, and we use the Bible to do that. And then he says this, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, and then examine yourselves. Exclamation. So there's the two imperatives in that one half sentence. Test yourself and examine yourself. They're two different Greek words. And they go together. They complement one another. And really what Paul's saying is test yourself. So have the courage, have the wherewithal, have the uh, memory to... Continually, as a Christian discipline, test yourself, being willing to subject yourself to the test. That's kind of scary at times. That would be like, be willing to at least go through the process of testing. Go through that gauntlet. The gauntlet is where you have uh, maybe two walls or a, a tunnel that's quite foreboding, and you have to walk through the tunnel, and it could be people on either side, and as you go through, they hit you as hard as they can, and then you see if you're still standing by the time you get through the tunnel. So... That's what the word test means. Be willing to test yourself. Go through the test. And then the second word that complements is examine yourself. It means after you've gone through the self-test, now evaluate yourself and see how you did. So you're putting those two together. It's test myself. How do I do that? Subject myself to the word of God and what God requires of a Christian, especially in the basic areas of the Christian life. And be willing to subject yourself to that. Actually, I'm forcing you to be subjected to a spiritual test this summer by preaching through these principles. So we're going through this together. Then your responsibility also is when we're done or while we're going through it is to examine yourself in light of the testing. How am I doing? Where are the bruises? Where are the chinks in my armor? Where are the shortcomings? Where am I not cutting the mustard? Where am I doing well? Where am I excelling? Where is God really helping me in certain areas? Because we all have strengths and weaknesses. So that's what Paul is saying here. So uh, test yourself, examine yourself. Those are the words being used there. That's what the Greek words mean. And we have the ability to do this. Uh, our pattern, unfortunately, and habit that comes so naturally is, you know, we don't test ourselves as frequently as we should. But who do we test almost every day? Other people. We're professionals at that. We, do, we test and criticize and examine and disapprove of other Christians all the time. Oh, they did this. And can you believe they did that? And they're this way. And I saw them over there doing this. And can you believe they don't do this? That's testing. Now all we got to do is, okay, then turn the cannons toward yourself and do that same deep scrutinizing in light of God's word of yourself. That's what Jesus said, right? Get the uh, telephone pole out of your eye, and then you will be in a position to look at somebody else's speck in their eye. So that's what we're doing. We are testing ourselves. We need God's help to do it. So let's go ahead and continue with the test. And today's topic is, like I said, serving or service or ministry. So that's what I mean by serving. What does the Bible say about serving or service? I'm talking about ministry, Christian ministry. So we have a narrow focus right out of the Bible. And the Bible says that Christians have many names because it speaks to our identity in terms of what God has done on our behalf, Christians. Christian, where does that word come from? That speaks to our identity. It's a follower of Christ. That's what it means, a small Christ one. So the word Christian means you are a follower of Christ. That name speaks to your very identity. But we have other names in Scripture. The child of God, the child of God. You're in the family of God. 
We are dependent upon the Father. Sweet intimacy, that's what that name means. It's one of our names. So we're Christians, we're children of God. We're also called believers all over Scripture. What does that mean? That we live by faith. We came to salvation by faith. It was God's grace, his work, not ours. That's what that word, that name, that's our very identity. We live by faith. We got saved by faith. We look to Christ coming by faith. So we're Christians. We're children of God. We're believers. We're also called beloved. Isn't that a beautiful term, the beloved? The ones loved by God. He set his love and affection upon us, saved us when we were his enemy. He loved us first. The Bible also says that believers are saints, holy ones. We've been set apart by a holy God for a holy purpose. It's our very identity. You don't have to die and wait five years to be canonized before you become a saint. You're a saint right now if you're a Christian. You are a holy one. We're called sisters and brothers in Christ. Again, we're in the family of God, and Jesus Christ is our not only our Savior, he's our elder brother. Our elder brother. Amazing. That's from the book of Hebrews. And then those are individual names that we have. And then there's the corporate names that, that we have that inform our, our identity. We're called the body of Christ. Collectively together, we are the body of Christ. So we're not lone rangers. We're not mavericks. We don't just do our own thing apart from the collective body of Christ, the local church. All the body parts need each other. Can't be out there doing your own thing apart from the body of Christ. That's our very identity. And then another corporate identity marker in addition to the body of Christ is that we're called the church, the ecclesia. That means the community of God, the assembly, literally assembling together. That's what the word means in the Old Testament and in the New. Ecclesia, church. The corporately coming together physically in personal proximity with one another. You cannot do that over Zoom. Cannot be done. And this is our very identity, the church. That's why the Bible says when the church gathered, when the church came together, no other way to do it. It's a preview of what heaven will be like. No Zoom in heaven, right, when we get there? We'll have to be together. As a matter of fact, you, you search the scriptures and you can't find anybody isolated in heaven, by the way. It's just crowds everywhere. Crowds of angels, multitudes, myriads, they're all together, they're crunched together, no COVID up there apparently. You got the saints up there. You got everybody around the throne. Nobody's isolated. Nobody's by themselves. The body of Christ, the community of Christ, the church glorified. So, all that to say, there's one more identity we have, and that's servant. We're called Christians and all these other names, but we're also called a servant. If you're a believer, you're called a servant. So, that means that is our very identity. All the way in the Old Testament, from Abraham, who was called a servant of God. Moses was called a servant of God, beginning in Exodus 4. David was called a servant of God. Believers in the Old Testament are called servants of God. Jesus called his followers servants of God. The church begins there called the servants of God. Paul called himself a servant of God. During the tribulation in Revelation 6, God's people are called servants of God as they're before the throne. God, servants. So there's continuity there from beginning to end in terms of our very identity as servants. We will always be Servants. There will always be this uh, separation, this ontological separation in terms of our very being, that we will always be separated from God, and that will always be our identity, even when we're glorified with a resurrected body without sin. We will always be God's servants. We will never become a God, like some religions try to tell us, or that kind of a thing, or get swallowed up into deity. 
No, we will always be servants. As a matter of fact, you know how the book of Revelation ends? God refers to, through John, servants. There will be serv- we will be servants in heaven, even. So that's a great picture. We are servants by our very nature. Uh, we were called to be servants. We were saved to be servants. We were saved to serve. If you're a Christian, you are by nature in your spiritual DNA a servant of God, a servant of Christ, a servant of the Spirit, a servant of the truth, a servant of Scripture, a servant of the church. We are servants. Therefore, we should be serving. That's only natural, right? Dogs bark. Cats meow. Servants serve. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus Christ. Amen. Where do you serve? That's what we're addressing today. It's a spiritual discipline. It's basic. It's fundamental. Let's kick it off with, regarding the topic on our outline there, I just want to look at Ephesians 2.10. If you wanted to flip there, or I can just read it. It's real short. Paul explains supernatural salvation. If you're a Christian, this is how you got saved. This is how I got saved. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and following. For by grace, God's grace, nothing you did, nothing I did. It is strictly by God's grace that you have been saved. You got born again through God's grace. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I had to believe. I had to do something. I had to believe. I had to repent. I had to hear the gospel. I had to put my faith and trust in the gospel. And God brings about this transaction of salvation by, strictly by his grace and his goodness. So you have been saved through faith by grace, and even not even the process of getting saved was of yourselves. It was all of God. It was the gift of God. Even the faith that you had to believe was a gift from God. It wasn't a result of works. Human works don't save us. Human works don't earn God's favor. Doing religious deeds mean nothing to God in terms of earning forgiveness. It was not a result of human works at all, so that no one can boast. No one can say they did anything to contribute to their salvation. It was all of God. That's why all glory and praise goes to God, right? And Jesus the Savior is all of him. It's the gospel. But don't stop there. So this is talking about salvation. And then verse 10 says this, For we, that's all Christians, are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, literally, Created in Christ Jesus, created when? Well, it started in eternity past. It came to fruition in this life. Created in Christ Jesus means you were saved in the name of Christ. You were saved by Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? You have a purpose. You want to live purpose-driven? Here it is. We were created in Christ Jesus, saved by Christ Jesus for good works. God saved you as a Christian for the purpose of doing good works. That is the distinctive of biblical Christianity. That's the distinctive of being a Christian. Well, does the world and unbelievers do good works? That's a yes or no question. Yes, they do. They do good works. But it's a different kind of good works. Sometimes God enables unbelievers to do good works out of common grace. He calls them like the policeman who's not a Christian, but he's out there upholding the law properly. Romans 13 calls him a minister of God, a servant of God. What is he? He's doing good if he's doing his job. 
but that's a different kind of works. It's a, not a spiritual transaction. It's practical. It's of this world. Then there are other people in the world who aren't Christians who do works, and they think they're good, and they're actually bad. They're out, they think they're serving the community and humanity and other people when actually what they're doing is bad and even evil. And they call it a service or a work. So this is a different kind of work that God has called us to. God saved us in Jesus Christ for the purpose of doing good works. And then he goes on, verse 10, uh, these works, which God prepared, God prepared these works you're supposed to be doing beforehand, before the world began. Before you were born, Christian, God prepared specific works for you to do during this life as a Christian. That's what that means. That is amazing. That's mind-boggling. Some Christians, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't serve in a ministry. I, I don't do good because I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't have anything to do. Well, are you a Christian? Yes, then you have more to do than you know. God prepared a lifetime of works for you before the world even began. Get busy. Start doing it. For we are his masterpiece, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for doing good works, these works which God prepared beforehand before you were even born, so that for the purpose of that we as Christians would walk in them. You know what walk means? That's a lifestyle. This just happens on a regular, ongoing basis. This is who you are. This is what you do. This is your purpose in life. You have other purposes in life, but this is one of them. What's one of the basic purposes of a Christian? To fulfill and continue to do the works of service that God has entrusted to me that he authored before I was ever even born because I'm saved in Jesus Christ. This is talking about ministry. This is spiritual works to set the context. So uh, that, that verse is just loaded, but that, it's foundational. So in light of that, uh, let's move on to our next point here. And before I get to 1 through 8, as always with Pastor Cliff, he's probably got some questions coming. So here they are. So here's my question of the day uh, to you. If you're a Christian, I'm talking to Christians. I'm not talking to you if you don't know Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If you, got, if you repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, and become a Christian, this will apply to you. But if you're not a Christian today, this doesn't apply to you. So this is uh, an in-house, intramural conversation, sermon, and questions. So fellow believers, question number one, it's the question of the day, is what is your ministry? I mean, that could go on the top of your bulletin there, big letters. What is your ministry? Or, where are you serving? Same question. Or, what is your ministry in the local church? That's what I'm talking about. Or, where are you serving on a regular basis in the local church? Question mark. That's the theme of the day. And these eight points will inform that and undergird that. Some of you, no doubt, are able to answer that question very easily. Because you know what, you're, you have a ministry. And what I mean, let me get more specific about what kind of ministry I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about ministry that you do in the local church on a regular basis. Meaning, oh, I, I did this event two years ago. I helped with the memorial service two years ago. Okay, that's great. What have you done since then and what are you doing on a regular basis is what I'm talking about. That kind of ministry. So you're doing this ministry on a regular basis. You're also doing this under the purview, the authority, and the leadership and oversight of the local church elders. 
because that is their responsibility to oversee the local church, oversee the flock of God entrusted to your care. If your answer to the question, oh, my ministry, fill in the blank and has nothing to do with the local church, that's not what I'm talking about. Or if it's a quasi-Christian ministry, but it's not directly related to the local church, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the theme of the day. Is there a place for that? Yeah, but that's not the priority. That's not what we're talking about. So what is your ministry on an ongoing basis in the local church on a regular basis under the leadership of the local elders and leaders of the church? And there is a direct pipeline to the local church and is for specific purpose of advancing the kingdom of God and the Great Commission. That's what I'm talking about. In contrast to other kinds of service, some of which are legitimate, some which are not legitimate, but they don't pertain to the local church and what we're talking about today. I already referenced or alluded to illegitimate forms of service that people think they do. We're not talking about that. There are secular areas of service. I said that unbelievers do service. There are actually places of employment here in the Silicon Valley where people work, where your, their corporation, their employers will actually give them an allotted amount of time per year to do service. Take the week off and go do community service. Go put in 20, 40 hours. Sometimes we'll even pay you for it. And they go around and try to find a place to do community service. Not a bad thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. Not that kind of service. We're talking about church service. Church ministry, that's not really church ministry. Uh, well, I serve at the PTA, the, over at the public school. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, that's a service. That's not what we're talking about. That's not ministry. Well, I'm on the board of the school. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, I work at uh, Help the People at Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. Well, yeah, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's, okay, Christian, uh, what's your ministry? On a regular, ongoing basis in the local church under the oversight of the church leaders. That's what we are focusing on. So uh, people will have excuses. Christians will have excuses for not serving in local ministry. I used to have some of these excuses. Some of these excuses came from me, by the way. I was the author and the perfecter of these excuses. Hopefully I don't use them anymore. The first one I never used as an excuse, but I hear it all the time. Heard it for three years almost. Illegitimate excuses of why Christians don't serve in the local church on a regular basis. COVID! That is not a legitimate excuse. Do you know there are people, there are people who call themselves Christians who literally either haven't gone to church in almost three years and some who've kind of gone to church, sort of, and haven't served anywhere? It's like once the pandemic came, unplug, oh, I guess I don't have to serve Jesus or the body of Christ anymore. Unthinkable. That'd be like saying, the I don't have to pray anymore because it's a basic Christian discipline required of God. And Jesus is going to judge us accordingly. Matthew 25, that whole chapter, we don't have time to read it. Jesus tells a story to his believers before he departs. I'm about to leave. I will come back again. Let me give you a parable. Here's how it goes. I, your Savior and judge, I am leaving. Before I leave, I'm entrusting to you stewardship, responsibilities, and gifts to employ them. They are supernatural gifts. They are heavenly energized 
spiritual gifts. Your responsibility as a steward of the gift I'm giving to you is to use it. Do it. Invest it. Employ it. And upon my return, I will take inventory. Jesus is talking about himself. What he's entrusted to the saints on earth. About serving. And then Jesus said, after a short period of time, the Lord came back and he took inventory, lined them all up. We were, you know, we're, as Christians, we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is awesome. But there's also a kind of an ominous, fearful component to it because Jesus said in Revelation 22, I think it's verse 12, he said, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Well, that sounds like good news. Whoa, listen to the second part of the verse. To render to, to pay back to every person according to their deeds, according to their service, according to their works, according to their ministry. Pay back. So yes, Jesus is coming, and we look forward to that as believers, but at the same time, the reality is, here comes Jesus. He lands on earth, and it may, we don't know what it's going to look like, but maybe it's, okay, everybody up against the wall. And there's a clipboard of inventory. There's a judgment coming. We don't know how it's going to pan out, but that's part of the real scenario. And I will pay. My reward is with me, and the reward isn't all good. Some of those rewards are punishment. Because that's Matthew 25. Going back to Matthew 25, Jesus said, I gave five talents. I gave a lot of stuff to some Christians. They're like 100-watt light bulbs. They're great potential, numerous gifts. And then there's other more normal Christians. And uh, I gave them three or two, three talents. They're like 75-watt uh, watt light bulbs. And then there's other Christians. And they have a gift too, and it's precious, and it's from God. And it can be invested and used mightily. And they just get one talent. They're 40-watt light bulbs. And we need 40-watt light bulbs. And Jesus does inventory. And they, and they all have to render, give an account to Jesus. And the, the guy with five, Lord, I've invested the five, and there was a return. And Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. The guy with uh, two or three, I invested that, Lord, and there was a return. Well done, good and faithful. So it was basically the same commendation, whether it was two or three or five. It's just it was faithfulness was the issue. And then the guy with, who was given one, oh, I was afraid, and uh, I didn't invest, I didn't do anything. I was afraid. And Jesus called him wicked. Kind of scary. So there's accountability for those things. Anyway, going back to illegitimate excuses, COVID, other ones. I don't know my spiritual gift. Now, that can be actually a, a legitimate thought issue because Christians do have to discover their spiritual gift because we, you know, we keep telling them, if you're a Christian, you received a spiritual gift or more than. So that's true. So there is this process of discovery and other Christians help you discover, but you just can't ride that one forever. You just can't keep, by, and you can't use it as a complete excuse not to serve at all in the church. There's plenty of places to serve. You serve out of love, all the one another. Start with the one, if you don't know your spiritual gift, then do the 42 one another's in the New Testament. That'll keep you busy serving. Bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, love one another, serve one another, be hospitable to one another, on and on. All those one another's. And then 
beyond the venture of discovering your spiritual gift. But you can't use that forever. I don't know my spiritual gift. Uh, here's one. I'm too old. I've heard that one. I've actually heard that one. I'm too old. And then I think of Anna in Luke chapter 2, verse 37. Anna, do you remember her when Jesus was born? That, that's an amazing passage if you read it. It says she was a widow for 84 years. Wait, what? She was a widow. She wasn't 84 years old. She was a widow for 84 years. Some commentators say she must have been 110 years old at the time when she said this and saw Jesus. What was she doing? It says she was in the temple, God's place. That's where God's people was, God's headquarters, not at the PTA or the school board. She was at the temple of God where God's people were. She loved God's people. She was at the temple day and night, never leaving, day and night. What was she doing? Serving is the word, serving. She was praying, but she was also serving. So if somebody had an excuse to say, I'm too old, Anna had it. And she is just an absolute model in scripture of service. How about, I'm too young. Young ones sometimes think that. Maybe they're even told that. Teenager, middle schooler, uh, you can't become a member of the church until you're 18. So that's not legit. If you're a Christian and you're five, God can use you. You should be serving somewhere. Vacation Bible School. I love Vacation Bible School. We had a, an awesome one, as you know, last week. Uh, and one of the beauties of it, especially as a pastor, is because you're an overseer and you're seeing the big picture of every demographic in church came together in terms of ages and giftedness and uh, came together for this one corporate, beautiful contribution and ministry of service with a common goal advancing the kingdom of God through giving the gospel and loving one another. It was a, a beautiful sight to behold. Must have had 70 plus people involved from our church serving. It's great. And some of the most wonderful server, servants serving and using their gifts to do ministry were the little ones. I had helpers that were middle schoolers and high schoolers. They were awesome, just so you know. Servant's heart, proactive, love to be there. Where some of their friends or people at school out on summer vacation going to the beach and whatever else while they're serving here. Yeah, they didn't care. They'd rather be here. Serving. So that was, that was great. So you can't use that excuse. I'm too young. Uh, or another one, I don't know where to plug in. I don't know where to plug in. Um, again, that could be a legitimate excuse, but not for too long. You might not know where to plug in, but you got to get to know people. you got to get to know the church. you got to immerse yourself, plant where you grow, talk to leadership, talk to other people, and start asking, where can I serve? And then just start doing it. Just start serving. And you can overcome that one. Uh, I'm too busy. A Christian should never say that. I'm too busy to serve in the local church. You know what that means? That could be translated as, well, no, you're not too busy. You have the wrong priorities. That's what that means. Who was the busiest person ever in the history of the world when they were on planet Earth? That was Jesus. What did Jesus always have? Time to serve. I mean, we're talking about mundane service to people. Hours on end. Many times. Days he just spent, he spent entire days just in serving other people. 
Can't use that one. All right. Do we have enough time to get to the points? Let's see. Oh, yeah, we do. So let's go through those. I'll, get, I'll read the point and then just give you a Bible verse. There's a lot of study you can do. On your, do you feel guilty yet? Well, that's not the goal. It was, uh, there's a difference between feeling guilty and convicted. Because I, I believe if you're a Christian and you feel convicted when you hear Scripture and you understand it, that is actually a good thing. That's a good pain. No pain, no gain. Welcome that conviction. Thank you, Lord. Ouch. Help me grow. That's how we should embrace that. That's, and again, it's a testimony of the living word of God. When you understand his truth. I think of Paul when he, in Galatians 1. Remember when he, uh, he planted the church in Galatia. He pastored the church in Galatia. He loved the saints in Galatia. He left Galatia. He wrote him a letter. And one of the things he said, you foolish Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1. Boy, that's not very nice. Well, he was speaking as an authoritative apostle, and then he starts out, and he warned him because he said in chapter 1, he said, am I therefore your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's a rhetorical question. Don't count me an enemy just because I tell you the truth, and the truth hurts. The truth hurts all of us. So this is good stuff. Um, 1 through 8, here we go. This is a biblical theology about ministry in the local church, serving in the local church, a basic Christian discipline that should be true of any one of us that claims the name of Christ. Number one, God commands all Christians to serve. God commands all Christians or every Christian, all Christians to serve, and then you can actually put at the end, in the local church, in the local church. That's what I'm talking about, in the local church. Oh, I'm a Christian. Where do you serve? Uh, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church. Where, where's your home church? Oh, I don't have one. I'm, uh, I'm a Lone Ranger Christian. I'm the Maverick Christian. I, I make rounds. I'm the itinerant Christian. I do all churches at my convenience. Really? Interesting. Thanks for your honesty. God's everywhere. The church is everywhere. The universal church. I go to church at the beach. Heard that one before. No, in the local church. Okay, 1 Peter 4.10. Peter cuts right to the chase of reminding Christians of what is expected of them on a regular basis. First Peter 4.10, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. Uh, he just gives this flurry of imperatives in chapter 4. Be hospitable, verse 9, to one another without complaint. And then verse 10, as each one has received a spiritual gift, as every Christian has received a spiritual gift. So he's saying every believer, every Christian, you've received a spiritual gift. God gave it to you when you got saved. When you got saved, you believed in the gospel, you were redeemed, but also the Spirit of God began to immediately live in you. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and that's the greatest gift of all is this, the Holy Spirit. What's your spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. And then he also imparts a very specific gift to you as a Christian. That's what Peter is saying. This is just basic. As each, as each and every single Christian has received already, because they got saved, a spiritual gift, use it. That's the command. Use it, employ it, present tense, in an ongoing, regular manner. This is not an option. This is a command. This is basic to Christianity. As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it, use it, doing what? Use your spiritual gift in serving one another. That's what spiritual gifts for. They're not for edifying self. They're for serving other people. 
to build the body of Christ. He goes on. Use it in serving one another. Who's the one another? The context is one another, the other saints in the church, in the local church. That's what he's talking about. It's not out in the world or wherever else. It's in the local church, building the body of Christ. As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another in the local church as good stewards. Whoa, steward, what's that? Uh, That means it was a gift given to you by God with delegated authority, and you only have it for a short period of time. It doesn't belong to you. It's a temporary gift. It actually belongs to God. He's going to come back and give an accounting for it as the judge. That's what that means. That's a steward. So your spiritual gift, have you been serving one another? Well, you're going to be held accountable for it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. These are gracious spiritual gifts God gives to you to serve the body of Christ. This is a basic fundamental command. Every Christian is expected to be serving in the local church in an ongoing regular basis, and we will all be held accountable for it. Galatians 5.13 just simply says serve one another. Serve one another. Again, those one another's is the context is the local church. You can't do the 40 plus one another's if you're not a part of a local church. Serve one another through love. Number two, uh, Christians serve with their spiritual gifts. We just saw that in 1 Peter 4.10. God's given you a spiritual gift for the purpose of serving one another in the local church. Serving. So Christians serve with their spiritual gifts. Let's look at also 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because that whole chapter is about spiritual gifts, the theology of it, where they're from, how do we use them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, uh, starting at verse 4. Now, there are a variety of spiritual gifts. There's all kinds of different spirits, but they all come from the Holy Spirit, same author, and there are varieties of ministries. He calls spiritual gifts ministries. There it is, serving. It's the word for serve. Spiritual gifts are called ministries. They're, they're for serving. That's what we do with spiritual gifts. That's how you serve. You serve in light of your spiritual gift. And the same Lord is the one that gives the spiritual gifts. There are varieties of effects. And when you use your spiritual gift to serve, there, there are effects, meaning there are results. There's fruit. There's spiritual fruit. God accomplishes stuff when you use your gift and use it in the church. People grow. God blesses. Things happen. It's awesome. That's an effect. But it is the same God, the Trinity, who works all things in every believer, verse 7. But to each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good. Christians serve with their spiritual gifts. And just keep going through that chapter. So uh, God's intention of giving you a spiritual gift is to use it in the local church body to serve other people that his church might grow. Um, Well, what if you don't? Do you have to serve only in light of your spiritual gift? No. Like I said, there's the one and others. But the spiritual gifts are in God's wisdom. Those are your supernatural gifts tools and equipment to be very specialized and effective in what you do and their origin is in heaven so if i have a heavenly divine supernatural gift from the spirit of god i want to know what it is i want it and i want to utilize it because it'll maximize here's the thing when you're actually serving in keeping with in tandem with in conjunction with your spiritual gift then you are maximizing your service god's way Maximum output, maximum blessing, maximum advantage. Really. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, you can try to serve outside of your giftedness. And I'm not talking about doing the one and others, but, oh, I'm gifted in teaching. I want to preach. Okay, well, 
let's try that and see. Or I'm gifted in counseling, and I want to counsel. And maybe you're not gifted in counseling. That's very dangerous, actually. I've seen that for decades. People who aren't gifted in counseling counsel and just mess things up, confuse people. Counseling is a spiritual gift, according to the Bible. So that's why there's that, that importance. Uh, service is a spiritual gift, according to Romans 12. So we should all serve, but then there's this very specialized, dynamic way of serving that's gifted that deacons in the church are supposed to have. You can't be a deacon without the gift of service. Or you could try to be a leader, and maybe you're not gifted at being a leader, and you might be a, not so, a mediocre leader. And sometimes, out of necessity, that's necessary. Where you're planning a church, or you're in a village, or where there's few Christians, and they're just trying to do the best they can. They're just trying to be faithful. And then sometimes they get relief from somebody who's actually gifted, and it's like, oh, thank you. I hated doing that. I was terrible at doing it. And they're just trying to be faithful to God. And then God honors that by bringing somebody gifted to do that. And it, it changes uh, the whole dynamic. So serve in keeping with your spiritual gifts. So Christians serve with their spiritual gifts. Number three, serving begins in the local church. In the local church. It begins there. Uh, and that's the focal point of serving in terms of ministry. Galatians, let's just look at Galatians 6.10. There are others, but Galatians is, is pretty specific. Here's the Apostle Paul talking to the Christians there. Uh, verse 10, he says, So then while we have opportunity, while as Christians we have opportunity here in life, let us do good. All right. That means do ministry, do service. Do good to all people, but especially or and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There it is. It needs to start in the church. If you have a spiritual gift and you want to do ministry, it's got to start in the local church. Hey, Christian, what's your ministry? And if you're, uh, do you have a ministry? Yeah. What is it? And if your answer isn't directly connected to the local church, you're missing it, especially in Galatians 6.10. I did this in ignorance. I grew up Roman Catholic. Not a very good Roman Catholic. And the Catholic church that I grew up in, which was typical, it was a carryover from the Middle Ages. And during the Middle Ages, uh, formal Christendom of the Catholic iteration, the Roman Catholic church, didn't have a biblical understanding of ministry and service. It was the cleric. It was the, uh, the, the priest who stood on the stage and was a performer, and he did everything. And what are you doing as the people? The same. You're sitting out there watching as a spectator, like a... Somebody in the stands at a football game. That's not biblical ministry. That's not the biblical model. 80,000 people in the football stands. 80,000 people just watching as spectators. The 22 guys on the field doing all the work. When in reality, it's the 22 guys on the field who need a rest and the 80,000 need exercise as they're sitting there in the stands. It's backwards. But that was medieval uh, Christendom and a model of many churches. That's the model I had growing up. You go, oh, how long is Mass today? You don't go to church, you go to Mass. Uh, hopefully this will be over in 37 minutes. Got a good priest today. He's quick. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is the mentality of many Catholics and me included. And you go and you sit there and you're a spectator and you watch the priest up there and he does all the stuff. In the early days when I was little, it was in Latin, so he didn't know what he was saying. And then you get to the Mass and the sacrament, you take that and you're done and you go. 
You don't read a Bible. You don't bring a Bible to church. You don't do anything. Nobody's serving anywhere. It's the priest doing everything. That's not biblical ministry. But that's what I was raised with. That's what was modeled to me. That was the theology I was taught. So when I got saved at age 19, I'm a Christian, but I don't know anything about biblical ministry or serving. Completely ignorant. Then I go to seminary, first year of seminary, first semester of seminary. I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know anything. And one class I had was called practical theology or pastoral theology. And there's 42 guys in the class. And day one, we're given an assignment is within two weeks, you need to tell the professor what your ministry is. What your ministry is. Well, apparently the 41 other guys knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, oh, yeah, I'm in a ministry. What was it? I was, te- I was a full-time teacher at a Christian school. So I checked that one out. Oh, yeah, a boom. Two weeks later, he goes around. We have to turn it in on a piece of paper. I get called out after class, and he talks to me. He says, uh, is, is this what you put down as a ministry? <clears throat> I said, yeah, I was, I was a full-time Christian school teacher. He said, no, that's not a ministry. I said, what? Of course it's, it's a Christian school. Whoa, tiger. <laughs> and we had a back and forth. And then I, I was not happy when I left. Because what, how I was interpreting that was he was demeaning my profession in a Christian school. The purpose of the Christian school was to advance the kingdom of God. How can that not be ministry? I go there, I serve the church, I serve Christ, I represent Him, I pray with kids, I have them memorize Bible verses. How can this possibly not be ministry? He would not back down. But he kept talking to me. I, I finally, it finally sunk in after three weeks. I realized uh, I was wrong. I was completely ignorant. He was talking about ministry serving in the local church, the body of Christ. The church. Jesus promised to build the church, not the Christian school. Ministry is in the local church. It's all over the Bible. So, that was a, so a Christian school is a parachurch ministry. It's not the church. And my professor was right. It finally sunk in. And by the end of the semester, I realized he was right. But I had a pretty bad attitude for several weeks. Who does he think he is? Demeaning my ministry to Jesus Christ. That was my attitude. So serving begins in the local church. Finally got the message. Um, 1 Timothy 5.10 says, When you're dealing with widows in the local church, uh, to help them give an assistance, there are qualifications to give assistance to a Christian widow. And Paul delineates what the qualifications of ministering to helping a widow are. One of them, she has to be at least 60 years old. She has to, of course, been you know a godly woman. Uh, and then one of the things that is required is she had to have been in the practice on a regular basis of uh, washing the feet of the saints. That's a euphemism or a colloquialism, meaning she was in ongoing regular ministry to the local church using her gifts, serving the body of Christ. And it was a pattern. It was a habit. That's a qualification. If she didn't do that, don't put her on the widow's list because she wasn't serving the body of Christ. Serving begins in the local church. Uh, If you're not a member of a local church, I encourage you to become a member. If you're a Christian, you need to become a member of a local church. If you're not, and you don't have to become a member of this church. But you should identify with the local church. And what, by identify means, well, my church doesn't have membership. Well, that's possible. But you better identify and become accountable to that local church. And in light of Hebrews 13, 17, you better know who your leaders are because it says right there, 
uh, you need to listen to and submit to the leaders in your local church for they watch over your soul and have to give an account to Christ for your soul. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you must identify with the local church. If you aren't, you are being disobedient. Maybe you were just ignorant, but now that you've heard it and you continue in that, then you're disobedient. That is not good. Thank God for the saints that he's entrusted to our care here at this church. We are blessed by our members who know what that means, biblically informed, take it seriously, and they want to serve and honor God with their life. Just so you know, thank you from the elders, by the way, to our wonderful members. All right, number four, serving helps the church grow. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said before he departed, I will build my church. That's a promise. Jesus has been doing it for 2,000 years. I will, future tense, church didn't exist yet. I will build my church. When did it begin? On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit. I will build my church. I will build my church, and it will go on in perpetuity. Nothing will overcome it. It will never fizzle out. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. The gates of Hades shall not overcome it. The gates of death shall not overcome it. Satan can do nothing to stop the church. No human can do anything to stop the church. It will continue throughout history in perpetuity. As a matter of fact, it's not just continuing forging ahead. The church is growing and maturing and becoming more beautified through the years. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Because Jesus Christ is building his church, fashioning his bride, dressing his bride, ironing every wrinkle until the day of consummation in the future. Jesus is building his church. I will build my church. Well, Jesus says, I will build my church. And then he leaves. What? Whoa. Wait, what? I thought you said you were going to build your church. How, how are you going to do that, Jesus? Through you, the fisherman, the uneducated Galilean fisherman. What, what? What? Or through you and me sitting here? And God's been doing that for 2,000 years. That's why Paul says in Corinthians... We are co-laborers with Christ, co-laborers. So Jesus actually is true to his word. He's building the church, he's been building it, but he's doing it through us. Feeble, frail, finite, sinful people. Building this beautiful, spiritual, eternal bride. Mind-boggling. What a privilege. So he uses us, you can just put down Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, don't have time to read it, but it says that Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then he gave spiritual gifts to all Christians. And with those spiritual gifts, first he gave apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for the purpose of equipping, building up the saints so that they might do the work of the ministry in the church. That's how the church grows. Serving helps the church grow. That's the only way that the church can grow. What's a dead church? You ever been to a dead church? Visited a dead church? I have. You ever seen a dead church? I can tell you one thing about a dead church that's true universally. Uh, you don't have the ministry of service of the saints going on. It's not there. That's the lifeblood of a, of a growing church. The saints are involved. They are there. They're all being used. They know they're a body. I'm a pinky. I'm a toe. I'm a knee. I'm an ear. And everybody's got a place, and they're working together, and there's synergy, and it's awesome, and God is blessing, and he's doing great things. And that church is vibrant, and it's producing, and it's replicating, and it's growing this way, and it's growing that way. 
that's God's intention. But when you have a sick church or a dying church or a dead church, it's this component is missing. Sometimes it's, you know what it looks like sometimes, the profile? It's uh, a one-man show. Some guy who's maybe called the pastor, and that's kind of his show. He's the sheriff, and he runs the show, and only he runs the show. God isn't going to bless that. Number five, serving is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and 1 Corinthians 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus rises from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. He calls his apostles together, and he says, wait, wait until the Spirit of God comes upon you. I will send my Holy Spirit, and he will give you power. This is to the apostles. So they would be, so what are they supposed to do until the Holy Spirit comes? Nothing, nothing. Don't even try to serve until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Don't even try it. It'll be a disaster. Wait for the Spirit of God to come upon you. He will empower you to serve Jesus Christ and advance the gospel. That's what God, that was the pattern. And then ever since then, as soon as you believe the gospel and get saved, God gives the Spirit of God to live in you. And then you are serving and use your gift in light of this. You're energized by the Spirit of God, literally. So in other words, ministry in the church is not in your own strength. At least it shouldn't be. And when you try to do it in your own strength, it won't work. It'll be shallow. It'll be superficial. It'll be compromised. It will probably fail. I was a part of two church plants over the years. One, I tried to spearhead in my own strength, actually. True story. 20 plus years ago. I got my agenda, I got my team, I got my plan, I got my vision, I got my vitamins, and I'm gonna, we're going to do it my way. After nine months of spinning my wheels, flop, dead, nothing. And God in his grace allows me to look back and say, that was, that was pathetic, McManus, that was in your own strength. Wasn't being led by the Spirit of God, wasn't being energized by his leading, wasn't in keeping with scriptural principles. Then I was a part of another church plant 15 years ago that I, I was at the forefront of it, but I had nothing to do with it. It was like God's just doing stuff around me and uh, assembling and bringing faithful, godly people. And uh, There's energy and a unity and gifted people. And then before I know it, I'm like right in the wave, like, whoa, how did I get up here? This is scary. And then I look back, it's like, well, God did that. He orchestrated it through his spirit, through his people, using their spiritual gifts. So we don't serve in our own strength. Number six, serving is informed by Scripture. Serving is informed by Scripture. Pastor Cliff, you should start a lemonade stand and raise money for the whoever. I've been told that before. Pastor Cliff, you should do this. Pastor Cliff, you should start this ministry. Pastor Cliff, you should do this. My first thought when I hear that is, okay, number one, is that in the Bible? Because I have a job description in the Bible, what I'm supposed to be doing. It's really clear. It's short. This is what I mean by serving is informed by Scripture. There's all kinds of things you can do. You can do so much service and so many good works, ad infinitum. There's too many good things to do, right? The question is, well, what's the right thing we should be doing? You can do good things or you can do the best and right things that God wants you to do. We have to sort between that. We have to uh, distinguish between those. That's why we've got to let Scripture guide us in terms of ministry and what we do. So there are all kinds of people with the gift of suggestions telling us all the time and elders and whatever, things we should be doing. And sometimes there are people that don't even go to the church. They send an email, oh, I heard you on KFAX, here's what you should do. Don't even know you, you don't know me, but here's what you should do. But really? No. 
it needs to be informed by scripture. So we have parameters, we have clear mandates. Uh, it's real simple. The main responsibility of service of the church of God is to advance the Great Commission, right? And that's real simple. And that's uh, proclaiming the glories of Jesus Christ, his gospel, making disciples until he comes. There it is. It's not doing uh, social work. It's not uh, doing social justice. It's not, I mean, you know, all the stuff we hear today that we're supposed to be doing. No. Informed by scripture. And by the way, Jesus is our model. He is the master. He is the exemplar, it's called. Uh, Mark 10, 45. Jesus himself said, talking to his apostles, preparing them to be, to be leaders and servants, and they're fighting and squabbling about who's going to be first and second in the kingdom, sitting on the right and the left. I want to be the greatest. I want to be the greatest. I want to be. This was the discussion they're having with Jesus. When we get to heaven and Jesus is like, wow, you guys don't get it. You sound like uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. <laughs> Dictators. He refers to the Gentile rulers of this world. That's how they rule. They put their foot on the neck of the people under them. That's what they see as leadership. And Jesus said, not, not of you. I didn't call you to do that. Rather, you are to be a servant of the people. You aren't supposed to be first. You're supposed to be last. And the reason you're supposed to lead... So, from Jesus' point of view, a leader is first and foremost a servant. That is a distinctive of Christian biblical leadership. A Christian leader is first and foremost a servant of other people. Servant of God, servant of other people. That's what you do. And then he goes on to give the reason, and here's why. Because the, even the Son of Man did not come into this world to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom. He's the model. And then the night before he died, uh, John 13, in that, that room, the Last Supper, he girds up his loins after dinner, he wraps a towel around, he gets a bowl, a basin of water, and a towel, and starts washing the feet. He gets, which is what the butler should have been doing, or the slave, the lowest slave in that house should have been doing, the lowest person on the, the totem pole. The least, literally the least. Jesus, creator of the universe, savior of the world. He's washing their dirty, smelly, stinking feet. Then when he's done, and Peter's like incensed. Peter's offended. Scandal. Don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm washing your feet. But if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. And as a matter of fact, sit down. Here's the lesson. That was a parable. What I just did to you, this service, this selfless service, this sacrificial service, this service of love to meet a specific need that was other-oriented, as I have done to you, so also you need to do to one another. That is the Christian life. That's the Christian ethic, service. Jesus was the model we serve informed by Scripture. Number seven, uh, serving or ministry is managed by the elders uh, for several reasons. It's the, in their very title, uh, Acts 20, 28, Paul, he gathers the elders from uh, Ephesus and he calls them, you guys, you're the overseers. You see the big picture. You got to see everything and all the ministry going on. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications is you've got to be able to manage your household well so that you can, quote, manage the household of God. Manage. He uses two verbs there. Manage the church and care for the church. And that includes managing the service that's going on in the local church as an overseer. 
And probably one of the most specific examples of that is Acts chapter 6, 1 and following, where there's ministry going on, doing a great thing, trying to meet the needs of the widows, and they were having problems, and the elders who were the pastors and the apostles, they oversaw that. They were the problem solvers. They proposed the solution. They uh, motivated and unleashed the saints to do the work of the ministry to solve that problem. And that's what elders and pastors need to be doing. They need to be hands-on involved. Number eight, uh, God rewards faithful service. Revelation 22, 12, I already referred to it. Behold, Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. To render to every man according to what you have done. Let's look at two more verses as we close. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll just read through it. Rewards. Um, and again, I, I believe that these rewards that are going to be given after you die, after I die, at the end of the age. Maybe this happens. I don't know when this happens because it doesn't tell us. Maybe this happens the moment you die and you go to heaven as a Christian. Or maybe it doesn't happen until the end of the age. We don't know. Could be at the end of the age in light of uh, Revelation 11. But 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, Paul's talking to believers uh, how they have received grace along with him. Verse 11, for no person, no Christian can lay a foundation in terms of spiritual ministry other than the one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of all service, all good works, all ministry. Verse 12, and now if any believer, man, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, or straw, each man's or each Christian's work will become evident. So he's talking about doing good works, doing ministry. And he says, uh, you can be doing a legitimate biblical ministry that has value and is precious to God, and he likens that to gold, silver, precious stones. It's valuable. So some of you are doing that. Many of you are doing that. And then he, he warns believers that, you know what, some of you Christians might be involved in ministry that's not really ministry. It's not really that valuable. It's not precious. It's rather wood, hay, and straw, or wood, hay, and stubble. You're doing stuff. The wheels are moving. Energy's being exerted, but you're wasting your time. You're not being biblically driven. or some, There's something else wrong. And God is the ultimate judge. Jesus is actually. Um, each man's work will become evident. Our, our ministry and our works here on earth will be exposed at the end of the age. For the day will show it. The day, that's, I believe, the judgment day at the end of the age. For the day will show it or reveal it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each believer's work or ministry that they do. What does that mean? Well, it's a metaphor, and Jesus is going to take a massive heavenly blowtorch to all of our works, and whatever was wood, hay, stubble, worthless, gone, poof, smoke. Well, Jesus, I, I did this, and I said this, and I taught here, and I wrote this book, and I, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's smoke now. Then there will be those that, when Jesus is done, gold, silver, precious stones remain. Those were precious. Those were precious. Um, verse 14, and if, so he's doing this to test the quality of our, our service. Verse 14, if any person, any Christian's work which he has built on it remains, then he will receive a reward. That's a good reward. So we will be rewarded for good works. And it could be faithful ministry. Maybe your ministry is, and you've been for uh, 32 years, have been a Sunday school teacher of uh, first graders, and nobody ever sees you, and nobody even knows much about you. But you've been faithful for 32 years. Maybe you've been a prayer warrior in a specific part of the prayer ministry at the church. 
for 17 years, and nobody knows about it. But you've been faithful to God, using your gift, and it helps build the body. And it's with God's smile from heaven. And it's going to be revealed, and God's going to bless that at the end of the age. There's going to literally that reward. It is a literal reward we will receive going into heaven, including the millennium and for all eternity. That you will keep and possess, I believe, forever, actually. Some of the rewards entrusted to some faithful Christians, actually, will be, I will let you reign over ten cities. Wow, that would be cool. So these are real rewards, eternal rewards, heavenly rewards. Uh, if your work is built and remains, you'll be blessed. And then verse 15, if any Christian's work, maybe they're not even a Christian, but this could be true of a Christian. If any man's Christian's work is burned up, snuffed out, then that Christian will suffer loss. You won't go to heaven? I mean, no, you will go to heaven, sorry. Uh, you're not going to lose your salvation. Uh, God's not going to send you to hell if you're a Christian, but you will suffer loss. You'll lose some reward. Your sins are forgiven, and you're not going to be shamed with your sin once you get to heaven either. But you will suffer loss, and but you as a Christian yourself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And then the last one, we'll close with this, and this is 2 Corinthians 5.10. Same topic. 2 Corinthians 5.10, and Paul says this about rewards. For we, all as Christians, must appear, must, this is going to happen, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bama, So it's going to be Jesus will be the judge. This is the end of the age. For the purpose of, so that each Christian may be recompensed, paid back, or the deeds or the works that they did in the body while here on earth, according to what that person has done, whether good works or bad works, will be rewarded accordingly. Well, that's a lot of stuff. Let's close with this. Some practical application and just reminders to help us out here. Well, about spiritual gifts and serving and ministry, uh, say you're struggling with this. And by the way, as we go through the spiritual disciplines, you might be all over the map. You might be doing really good. Oh, my prayer life, it's awesome. By the way, how would you do this week? On your knees. But that's a different topic. Uh, but so you might be doing good in your prayer life or giving, and then you're, oh, I'm not doing so hot on ministry. Or maybe you're doing good at ministry, and then we have another one. That's true of all of us. But if you are struggling with respect to uh, serving in the local church, here's just some thoughts. Um, be proactive. Say so you're not serving, you don't have a ministry, you can't answer that question. What is your ministry in the local? Be proactive. Don't sit around and wait. Well, nobody's asked me to do anything. That's another illegitimate excuse. Be proactive, take initiative. Uh, number two, be creative. Innovative. In light of all those other guidelines. Here's an example. We had no video ministry or YouTube ministry prior to COVID. We have one now. A video ministry. It's, it's actually amazing, and it, it's advanced our ministry and actually the gospel to the ends of the earth. It has been one of the most impactful, profound ministries in our local church. It wasn't my idea. Five years ago, somebody was asking me about, can we have a video? I'm like, no, why not? Because I don't know how to do that. Then God raises up saints, people who don't even work at the church. They're just believers, members of the church. They're creative. They want to use their gifts. They take initiative. Boom, God blesses. There you go. So be creative. Also be persistent. Stick at it. Oh, Pastor Cliff forgot. The elders forgot. The whatever. They said no. Be persistent. Uh, another one, number four. 
don't just ask about a ministry, start a ministry. Are there, because that's a typical, are, what are, are there any ministries I can serve in? Yeah, we got, uh, here's a list, here's 37 examples. And you look at it and like, oh, they're all full, I'm not gifted, I don't like those. Then start one. That's number four. Start a ministry. There's an idea. My mentor, pastor, down in Southern California, John MacArthur, years ago, that's what he'd say all the time. People have ideas. Pastor, here's a new ministry that I think you should do. And he said, no, I don't think you, I should do it. I think you should do it. <laughs> You're so passionate about it, you do it. Well, God's talking to me, and well, then God's talking to you. He's not talking to me. You do it. <laughs> so in his greatest example is the radio ministry around the world. Time and time again, he just testified, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't want to do it. I didn't even think of it. Somebody in our church early on in the 70s just had a desire and a gift. We need to get this out around the world. Can we start recording you? And, and then it just grew from there. And the pastor had nothing to do with it other than just he's going to just keep doing what he's doing, preaching his sermons. But it was the initiative, the creativity, and the persistence of people that God brought in the body of Christ using their gifts. God blessed. And it just unleashed an incredible ministry. That's the way to unleash ministry and the spirit of God in the church is when the saints think that way and start a ministry of your own. And don't, contrary to that, start your own ministry or start a ministry that blesses the church. Don't just suggest a ministry. Don't just criticize other ministries and be praying for other ministries. So with that, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Thanks for listening, being tuned in. And we're just going to trust that God is going to bless us as we move forward with this Christian discipline of service to him. Father, we do thank you for our time together and uh, just a great blessed time to be with the saints every Lord's Day to celebrate your resurrection, to be with your people, to sing to you, to hear from your word. God, take all these Bible verses that we've walked through together, allow them to ring true in the forefront of our mind throughout the day, throughout the week. As we meditate on them, pray about them, lay them before your feet, and God, bless our ministry and service here at this local church. And God, if there's uh, other people who are just visiting today, uh, thank you for their service in their local church. And if there's Christians out there who legitimately, Lord, are desiring to serve somewhere and don't know quite where to serve, that you would give them wisdom, bring other believers into their life also, to guide them, to give them counsel, encouragement, uh, to allow them to find a place of service that blesses you and builds the body all for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.